Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. So happy to see you in church this morning. Woe to you who are rich, Jesus says. If you're laughing now, and if you're well thought of in society, well, look out. Because things are about to change. The tables are about to turn. Well, well, Jesus, I was just trying to enjoy my Super Bowl Sunday, okay? <laughs> thanks, but no thanks for that settling uh, headline. Um, how is this good news for someone like me, for someone who lives in a nice neighborhood a block away from a really nice community pool, someone who drives a really fancy minivan with automatic sliding doors, someone who will, will without even thinking, whip out my Chick-fil-A app, purchase nuggets for the kids without even checking to see if the money's there. I'm not worried about it. How many nuggets do you want? We're going to buy them all. <laughs> How do you feel when Jesus starts talking about the tables turning? Are you like, yeah, finally, finally the tables are going to turn. Finally, I'm going to be the one with the nuggets. Or perhaps instead, maybe this feels a little unsettling. Not sure if we want to go there with Jesus this morning. Before we dive into it, I just want to acknowledge that this is a really hard passage. It's a hard passage to hear. It's a hard passage to preach. We have this set of reading called the, le the lectionary, okay? So it's readings that the church reads together and we hear sermons on them. Thank God for the lectionary, right? Like, if I just woke up this morning and thought, man, what do I want to preach to these fine folks about, right? This might have not been the text I would have chosen. Probably, probably wouldn't. Now, on the other side, I do know that this text is core to understanding who Jesus is, to understanding his mission in the world, to understanding the good news of the kingdom. So I know we need to hear it, but in a sense, it's a little difficult. I also want to acknowledge that many of us grew up in churches where passages like this, so this is the Sermon on the Plain, it's not the Sermon on the Mount, okay? The Mount is in, in Matthew, don't confuse them. They're similar, but they're different. And these sermons from Jesus, whether on the plain or on the mountain, if you grew up in a church like me, were largely ignored. I don't ever remember hearing a, serm, a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's core to Jesus, it's his teaching, it's the summary of his teaching, but we never talked about it. It was something we didn't, talk about. So maybe you grew up in a church like mine, and then others of us maybe grew up in a church where we talked about these texts, but we spiritualized these texts. We made them so spiritual that they had very little to do with their everyday lives. Or maybe we grew up in a church where we saw this as heightened law, law that we as Christians don't follow, but it's just we're going to heighten that law up just so you know how much of a sinner you could be if you were supposed to follow it, Right? My prayer for us this morning 
is that we could not only take these words from Jesus as the very word of God, but that we could also become the kinds of people that are capable of receiving them as good news. So let's track with the movement here in the gospel. And if you notice, I do a lot of recapping. It's because I really like the Bible, and it's almost like a movie. And if you just take the scene out of the movie, it's, it doesn't work as well, right? Let's just pick up where we started last week, if you were with us. We had that really great, amazing story of Peter, right, and his catch of fish, right? And so that was the calling of a self-identified sinner. So Jesus calls the sinner Peter and his sinner fisherman friends, and they start following Jesus. And then what happens immediately after that is there's a leper. And and this leper asks Jesus to cleanse him, to make him clean. And Jesus does. He makes the leper clean. Now, it's interesting words, right? Leprosy is a disease, but we're using the word clean. The text uses the word clean. And part of it is, if you think about it, if you have leprosy, you're not allowed into, into the temple, It kind of hits home, right? Like if you got COVID, there's a lot of places you can't go right now, right? Even if you're coughing, even if you don't have have, uh, COVID, you can't go, right? Well, these people live with leprosy their whole lives. And they wanted to worship God and they love God and they wanted to be near to God, but they couldn't and they were excluded. And they were excluded from a lot of parts of society. And so this healing isn't just a healing in itself. It's a cleansing. It's a restoration to community. It's a restoration to, to relationship. And it's a restoration to the presence of God. And then after that, Jesus is teaching in this house. And they lower this paralytic down through uh, the roof, the text tells us. And before Jesus heals the guy, which is an amazing miracle, he says this, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus demonstrates the power to forgive sins and to heal a paralytic. And of course, as he does this, the religious leaders are not happy at what he's saying, right? They start complaining. And then in the next section, we see Jesus meets this tax collector called Levi. Tax collectors aren't good people. Just if you don't know, in this culture at least, uh, the Romans are the enemies. They are literally oppressing the people of God. And tax collectors are people who are in bed with the Romans. They're going to help the Romans collect their tax money. And often they're going to do it by cheating people and charging them a little extra. And and just kind of, you know, it's really gray and fuzzy, their their work. And so the people of God don't like their own people that join with the Romans and, and, and are participating in this profession. And what Jesus says to Levi, he says, hey, come follow me. Like, you've got a really bad reputation, and I want you to come be a part of my group. This thing that I'm leading, I want you to come co-lead it with me. So he calls Levi, and of course, the Pharisees complain. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this is the motion that is happening as we enter now into chapter 6. You see... I'm sorry, can I do it? I'm just tempted to write on the board again. Can I do it? It's like uh, you shouldn't do it once because then you try and do it again. If you're just joining us, welcome to Trinity. We're a church with a whiteboard, and the pastor keeps getting sucked in into uh, writing. All right, so their life is centered around the temple in Jerusalem. 
in some ways, like there's a few of us here that are in investment banking and that kind of thing. And they tell stories like, yeah, we went for our year up in Manhattan and we did our thing and then we moved back to Atlanta, right? There's a few of us here that have done that. And it's kind of like New York is like the center of that. And then you can go and be a part of it somewhere else. But it kind of, in some ways, revolves around that. And for Jewish life, the temple is the center of uh, financial power and also uh, religious power and also political power. And in fact, we would have these as very different things and they overlap a lot closer in this culture. And so the reason why I'm pointing out is that the culture is centered on this. So the closer you're in to, to these three things, the more power and the more relationships and the better your life is in this culture. It's very similar to our culture, right? In many ways. And then there's these people that for whatever reason, they find themselves on the outside of it. Maybe they're just really poor. And so when you're poor, less people come to you for connections. So you're just kind of out there. Poor, poverty is kind of a relational thing, right? You don't have the connections you need uh, to, get, to get ahead in life. And then there's people that for religious reasons, they're on the outside. Like for instance, these are the tax collectors or people like that. Uh, which you might, the text is calling sinners. And don't think of this in some kind of like cheap way. Uh, God's people have a certain way that they're supposed to live into. And so there's people that are living outside of that. And so it, uh, it's, a, it's a much thicker sense in, in what, how we might think of it. And so there's people that for different reasons that are finding themselves on the outside, right? So they're out here on the margins, and what happens is Jesus is on the scene and he is coming to these folks that are out here on the margins and he is bringing them in. In a sense, they, had, they were excluded from life in the temple for various reasons. And suddenly in their life with Jesus, they're finding themselves in the very presence of God and at the very center of what God is up to in the world. Christ is restoring these people into community. And in Christ, they are encountering the presence of God, the very thing they have been included from. And so this is the big picture of Luke 5 and Luke 6. God restoring folks at the margins through the ministry of Jesus. And religious leaders who are at the very center are complaining about what's happening at the margins. They're not happy about it. And this is the good news today that through the Messiah, God's end time kingdom, so this is gonna be a kingdom of peace and justice brought about by God's forgiveness and grace where there is no lack, so there is no poverty, there's no sickness, and there's only wholeness. And this end time kingdom is breaking in right now in the ministry of Jesus. They're literally seeing this happen right before their very eyes. And that's where our text picks up today, verse 17. It says, he came down with them. So Jesus came down with them. And then in verse 19, it says, and then all were trying to touch him for power came, down, for power came out of him and healed all of them. So first, down from where and with whom? What is he talking about? Well, in the passage that follows just immediately before this, this is what happened. Jesus had a big decision to make. 
And so he went up a mountain so he could get away from everyone so that he could spend time with the Father in prayer. And it's there that he spends all night praying. And then at the end of a long night in prayer, he comes out and he calls the 12 apostles. He calls the ones that he's going to train and the ones that are going to take up his work after he's gone. And so when it says he came down from there, it means he came down from the mountain with the apostles that he had chose. And then he starts to do the ministry he does. He starts healing people and everyone starts to come out to him and there's this big crowd. And that's why it says power came out from him. Well, where did the power come from? The way Luke tells the story, it's like he wants us to see Jesus going away and kind of getting recharged. Of course, Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is filled with the spirit, right? We see that at the baptism. But it's in a sense as if Jesus keeps going to get refilled. He keeps going back to the mountain to spend time with the father. And then when he comes back to do his ministry, suddenly that power that is received from the father goes out to the people. And I want to take a moment just to look at that, to remember that as Christ's disciples, we have to do what Jesus did. We have to model our lives on Jesus. You got a big decision to make? Maybe it's a decision about your kid's school or a career choice, or are we going to move here? Are we going to do that? You got to go up to the mountain. You got to spend some time with the Father. You want to see God using you as an agent of the good news. You want to see him using you as his agent of healing in the world. We've got to go up to the mountain. So the text says, power came out of him. Power came out from him. And then in the next verse, verse 20, is where Jesus begins his sermon. Now, the sermon is actually a thing I really wanted to focus on. But in order to understand the sermon, we have to understand the context. It was important for us to recap the ministry of Jesus, the healing and the exorcism and the restoring of folks at the margin, because it's only in the context of this ministry that these beatitudes, these blessings and these woes will make sense. You see, Christ's demonstration of the kingdom, it creates a situation in which a sermon on the nature of the kingdom becomes not only necessary, but intelligible. Christ's demonstration of the kingdom creates a situation in which a sermon on the nature of the kingdom becomes not only necessary, but intelligible. What I'm trying to say is Jesus is having this powerful ministry and he's demonstrating what this kingdom healing looks like. And it creates this moment where he's gonna say, okay, you're seeing this, you're witnessing this. Let's talk about what this means. And we're going to see this over and over again, right? Remember the book of Acts? Like something powerful, big is going to happen on the day of Pentecost. And then Peter's going to say, you see this thing you're experiencing? Let's talk about what this means. And then again, right, he's going to heal the paralytic on the way into uh, the temple, right? And again, it's going to be an opportunity for proclaiming the good news. Well, it's the same thing here. And what I want you to know is that Jesus' miracles and Jesus' preaching go hand in hand. Some of us modern people would be tempted to just take just that sermon part by itself and try to abstract some truth out of it, like we're just going to kind of extract that truth and find some general good wisdom to live by, 
apart from this life in ministry and, and the, what you might call the power ministry of Jesus. And what I want you to understand that for Luke, these two uh, are to be held together. We really don't understand the one without the other. And so we get these beatitudes and woes, and they describe a reversal that is very common throughout Luke, right? Like if you guys are familiar with what we've been talking about, kind of since Advent, we had Mary's song. Remember that? Mary sang the song, and she's singing a song about how God is, is raising up the humble and he's putting down the proud, right? This big reversal, and she's sending away the, the rich empty and filling up the poor, and so she's talking about that in Luke 1. And then again, in Luke 4, we had two sermons where we're talking about Jesus' sermon, where he comes in and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because, what? I'm here to preach good news for the poor. And there's going to be release for the captives and freedom for folks that are oppressed, right? And so there's this idea of reversal that just keeps coming up in this gospel and what Jesus is saying to the people over and over again is the way that the world looks is about change. And he's got these, these four blessings and he's got these four woes and they just mirror each other. And I'm gonna kind of put the blessings together with the woes so you hear them that way. He says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you if you're rich because you have already received your consolation Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. But woe to you who are full now, because you will be hungry. Blessed are you who weep now, because you're going to laugh when the tables turn. But woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. And then this final, final one has to do with rejection and acceptance. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you when people speak well of you, because that's what they did for the false prophets. Depending on your situation in life, these words could feel really heavy or really just like a huge weight lifted off of you. I want to just give a few notes on these beatitudes and woes. The first one we've already alluded to is that this is Jesus' vision of a new world. And this new world is... Um, to use a big theological word, eschatological, which means it has to do with the end, the end days when the kingdom of God fully breaks in. So it's an end time vision of what it looks like for God's kingdom to be fully realized on earth. So it has to do with the end times, and yet it's already starting to happen. And we talk about this a lot. It's a now but not yet kingdom. So think about the future element of what Jesus is saying. You're hungry now, but you will be filled. You weep now, but you will laugh. But then there's a very present part of his text as well. He says, blessed are you the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's not like you're going to own it one day. You own it right now, and so you are blessed 
right now. And so there's this in time element of when it's going to be fully realized, but we're already starting to see it break in in the ministry of Jesus. And then two, um, I want to point out that Jesus's words are calling the people to a radical paradigm shift. They're intended to jolt, jolt the audience into new perceptions for God's redemptive aim. In their old way of thinking, folks who are out on the margins are out there by, in a sense, by divine sanction. Like if they're out there, there's probably a good reason why they're out there, and there's probably a reason why God wants them out there. And so Jesus is saying something completely radical. He's saying something that's gonna cause upheaval. And so it's meant to be very pointed, and it's meant to, to jolt them in a way that they have to ask themselves, under what circumstances could this be true? And I would say it's the same for us today. That's, what, that's the real, we'll get that toward the end. The real, the real work of this gospel work is to say, God, help me to see the world from the vantage point in which this could possibly be true. Third, these beatitudes and woes are words of hope and comfort to people like those who have already been recipients of Christ's ministry. So the, the crowd includes folks who are poor, and some of them are poor because they have left everything to follow Jesus. It includes lepers and sinners, demonized tax collectors, women, and different kinds of people that would have found themselves on the margins. This radical new world that is emerging through the community formed around Jesus is healing and preaching. These are folks that have been rejected living on, on the margins and they're finding themselves embraced and at the center of a new world that is coming about in Jesus. I guess the way I imagine it is that we could say it's a future world that's coming, but if you're kind of a part of this Jesus thing, like if you're there on that day where folks are getting healed, you can see it, like it's in it, like it's already there. And then finally, this new world will catch folks off guard who have been measuring their lives according to the older life. And what, I'm what he's saying is you've been indexing your life to this thing, whether it's riches or like kind of feeling good or pleasure, these different things. And if you're still indexing your life to those things, you're going to be caught off guard when the kingdom comes. In fact, these Pharisees and these, these folks that don't like what's happening, it's because they've already been indexing their life to the wrong thing. And we see this kind of reversal uh, stories and these table turning over and over again in the book of Luke. Probably the most sharpest illustration we have is in Luke 16, when Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you guys remember this story? So there's a rich guy and it says he just feasted every night and really enjoyed the good life. And then there was a poor beggar named Lazarus who sat outside of the rich man's gate and he was covered in sores. And the text says the dogs used to come and lick his sores. And then I'll read the story. It says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me 
and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And here's the reversal. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. This text reveals so much about God and his character and who he is. But one thing at least that it must be said is that it reveals a God who cares deeply about our material well-being. God cares about our material well-being, and he wants us to care for the well-being of others. So what are some takeaways for us this morning? Well, one thing I hope we could take away is that we need the same dependence on prayer that Jesus demonstrated if we want to become his followers and continue in the work, in his work, in the power of the Spirit. I want you to notice that the social justice Jesus is the same Jesus need to get away and spend some time with my father, Jesus, right? The same one who's doing the action is the same one who's getting away for rest and contemplation and prayer. And there's this monk that has this large organization that a lot of folks are into, and I love the name of it. It's the Center for Contemplation and Action. And I love that name. And I just want to remind you as Christians, we've got to be people of contemplation and action. Now, I would guess that a lot of us lean one way or the other. Some of us just love contemplation. Some of us just kind of love kind of doing our thing. But that contemplation rarely leads to action, maybe. And if you're like me, I actually tend to lean into the action. Like, I'm ready. Let's go. You know, I'm ready to do this. And if you're like me, you've got to be constantly reminded and discipline yourself. No, actually, I need to get away from the doing and more into the contemplation. I want us to remember the importance of dependence on prayer Dependence on time with the Father. And then second, we need to ask God to change our hearts and our minds so that we can believe Jesus at his word. What would it take for us to truly believe these words? That the kingdom belongs to the poor. That To use the words of Mary, God is bringing down the powerful from their thrones and lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. My question for you this morning is, do you believe this? Like, do you really believe that this is what God is up to in the world and that this is actually the future of where things are heading And one way I would ask us that is, do your actions, your values, your priorities demonstrate that you believe this? That the folks living on the margins are actually going to be the ones at the center. There's a man named John Watson who lives in Los Angeles, and he's a part of a kind of a neo-monastic evangelical group called Interchange. And in interchange, they live uh, with the urban poor. 
kind of live among them and just, uh, they're there to serve and, you know, be disciples of Jesus, show the love of Jesus, make disciples. John's been living with the urban poor in Los Angeles for decades. And while I was a seminary student, a couple of us students were uh, down in a neighborhood called Westlake MacArthur Park, um, which is just west of downtown in LA. And it is um, a landing spot for immigrants. So it's lots of immigrant families. Um, And John had been living in that neighborhood for several decades. And it's also a neighborhood uh, that's got a lot of beauty, um, just very colorful, um, wonderful places to eat, beautiful parks, beautiful houses. It's also a neighborhood where gangs control blocks. And so they don't control a lot of blocks. Sometimes it's like, we just live on these like four blocks and we can't go over to the next one. And I remember somebody asking John a question that I'll never forget. They said, John, don't you think this is a dangerous place to raise kids? And what he had to tell them is that in some ways, yes, but to his mind, it would actually be more dangerous to raise the kids in Beverly Hills. You see, in a place like Beverly Hills, kids are exposed to some very dangerous ideas. It's a place where certain folks are excluded. It's a place where people trust in their riches. It's actually not the best environment for Christian discipleship. And I thought about John as I was thinking about this message and what a shocking thing it was for him to say that and just how dangerous it might be for me to be raising my kids and a place like Embry Hills or Dunwoody or Brookhaven. It could give my kids the wrong impression about wealth and power and forgetting people in certain parts of the culture. This could be an exercise for us. Imagine if Christ came back tomorrow Tables are beginning to turn. Would there be anyone among the poor or the hungry or those who are mourning, those on the outside of the culture that could vouch for you? (laughs) Now, this is kind of a crazy exercise, but I actually think about this a lot. So I lived in Los Angeles in a gentrifying neighborhood. And I know gentrification is a hot button issue. A lot of people I know won't even use the G word, but it's a thing. It's a major force in that neighborhood, and there are folks that are literally um, low-income families that are getting forced out because rich people are coming in and renovating houses and building apartments and and doing all the things that they do. And I believe that God had called me to that neighborhood to start a church for all the people in the neighborhood, and so I did it. But you know what? I suddenly was a part of that system. I suddenly was helping the rent prices to be higher than they might have been if I weren't there. Now, I'm just one little drop in the system, but I'm a drop. And so I had to reflect, what would happen? Like, what would happen if the Lord returned and wanted to set things straight here in this neighborhood? Well, we can't know. (laughs) We can't know for sure. 
But I do know, I would certainly hope that there are some folks there that are living on the margins that would know my name. And that they would say, no, you know what? When I needed help, John, help me. Or, you know, there was this court date that I had and uh, my landlord was trying to illegally evict me and John put on his collar and showed up and came with me, right? There's things that we can do, little things we can do to befriend folks on the margins. Rich Mao, the president of Fuller Seminary, great storyteller, kind of an evangelical reform type, would always talk about this conversation he had with a Roman Catholic theologian. And the Roman Catholic theologian told him, you know, you Protestants, you imagine that when you go up to heaven, that St. Peter's going to be sitting at the gate and deciding who gets to come in or not. But he said, we Catholics, we don't think it's Peter at the gate. For us, it's Lazarus. And if Lazarus knows your name, poor old Lazarus with the sores, the dog that licked his sores, if he knows your name, then maybe you'll get in. Now, this is heavy stuff, right? Um, And I recognize that. I acknowledge when I came in that we have a heavy gospel text to sit with. I think it's okay. I think it's okay that it's heavy and that we can leave it there. And if we can sit with it, ask for the grace of God to speak through it. Before we go into a moment of silence, we're reflecting on what God might be speaking to us. I just want to give you two practical ways that we could respond to a message like this. One great way to respond would be to spend some time with the organizations that we're already supporting here uh, in Atlanta. So one great organization that we support is a group called Lazarus. (laughs) And what they do is they go down in teams uh, around downtown and and, um, they're there to connect with, with folks that are experiencing homelessness. And they're kind of there to be a presence of help. They're kind of connected with other, um, kind of the mission and stuff down there. And they're kind of a, we'll connect them and, and help them and kind of rebuild relationship uh, with folks that have experienced a breakdown of relationship. It's a great thing to be a part of. Uh, Presencia is an organization that we support that uh, is involved in tutoring kids after school, mentoring kids. Upper 90 is another mentoring program that we support um, where they're playing soccer with kids and getting into their lives that way. And then Los Vecinos de Buford Highway is another organization we support um, that's loving the immigrant population along Buford Highway. I encourage you to check into those groups or maybe check into something else. Maybe there's something that's more closer to you or more proximate um, that's good for you. I encourage you to look into that. And then a second final way that we can um, respond to this message is pretty soon we're about to be in Lent. And uh, one of the core practices of Lent is what's called almsgiving. And that's just a very churchy way of saying we take up a collection and we give it to those in need. And we're gonna be doing this. And so it's, it's great, right? So in Lent, a lot of us are giving up things anyway. So it's a time to think, I'm gonna put away a little extra money. Maybe I'm gonna, you know, one less trip to the fun thing I like to do, whatever it is. It's, 
and put away some money and I'm going to give it away to someone that's more in need than I am. That'll be a great way to respond as well. I want to invite you now into a moment of silence as we reflect on what the Spirit might be speaking to us.